Welcome to the Whiskey and IR Theory podcast. I'm Daniel Nexon, and my co-host is Patrick Jackson. This is, technically speaking, part two of our panel discussion about racism and securitization theory. It features Jared Hayes, Nawal Mustafa, and Robbie Shilliam. You can listen to their self-introductions in part one. So what do I mean by technically speaking? I like to think of this part two as something of an epilogue to the previous podcast. After we wrapped the main discussion, we hung around and talked for another 45 minutes or so. Not everything we discussed was really oriented towards broadcast. Some of it was way off topic, and some of it we decided to cut. Well, that raises the question, what isn't here? The main thing we removed was my evaluation of some of the public controversy about the editorial process, both for the original article and for the replies, as well as some questions from Jared about these matters. At the end of the day, I think, and everyone agreed, that it's probably best that if I do weigh in on this matter, that I do so in writing where I can be more comprehensive and less likely to garble some of the accusations. What you will find here ranges from a discussion of the concept of grievance studies to the need to work through what Twitter means for how we talk about scholarship and academic controversies. The podcast ends rather abruptly because that's how our conversation ended, rather abruptly. I hope you get something out of these snippets of our metaphorical after-dinner conversation, and with that, I will get things started. We've been going for a while. <laughs> this is this an endemic problem with this podcast. Uh, you know, you get a bunch of academics together, what do they like to do? Talk. <laughs> um, but uh, but also to listen to one another, I think at its best. There are a couple of topics that we did not cover that are on my list. We did touch on the issue of power differentials in the field and the way that that's entered in that debate, the way that Buzan and Waver anticipated it would enter in that debate, and the way that it has talked a little bit about how different communities in IR are talking about this controversy. It's very clear that there are pretty stark divisions in how it's being interpreted and what's being emphasized. There is this whole line there, which focuses on the argument that the, about how the editors handled the whole process. I, do we wanna go there? I mean, I, this is something where I'm, I do have stuff, I think some of us, I in particular, have things that we could say about it. So you, you, you're mostly sort of the, the way that, that Buzan and Waver kind of report their dissatisfaction with it because again we're, yeah. we're getting we're getting a it's a weird one-sided because we don't have we don't have the other right. side yes. of it yes. you know the course um, i mean I, I was gonna just put in the conversation to that other broader context again and this this question about retraction and you know in those cope guidelines it would be either the the peer review process has been dodgy and you know, that's not public information, right? Or that it's, you know, the findings are sufficiently misrepresentative that it, it brings the whole argument into question, which then pertains to those issues about, well, it, it's it, most directly issues about citations and whether those citations actually support the argument or not, right? But I've seen on Twitter, good old Twitter, a couple of very senior IR theorists who are, not talking about those kind of technical things, but actually relating it to, you know, what they call grievance studies, which has entered IR and which is, you know, a malicious influence. And with the implication, even if they don't make it, but with the implication in the broader discourse 
that to retract it is to safeguard the intellectual integrity of IR from grievance studies infection, right? And, and we have to be very, very careful about that, right? That is absolutely separate to the issue about the, 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 the technical reasons why a piece should or shouldn't be retracted, but it's becoming a kind of culture wars thing, right? Now, now why I started off talking about, you know, the principles of this anti-racist stuff in the black radical tradition was to emphatically <laughs> put on the table that this is not grievance. Again, grievance studies is a term which has been created by the right to delineate this. It's not a self, it's like cancel culture. It's not self-articulated. It's in the majority, uh, uh, you know, uh, articulated from, from the right. Yeah. And, and when I, even when I was talking about the generosity of the black radical tradition, that generosity is a curse. I mean, in a good thing. I mean, one has to be generous. And, you know, one will often be met with absolute ungenerosity, but one still has to be generous. It's a curse. You know, <laughs> you get what I'm saying, right? So I, I just want to put on the table that where we really have to be careful is to start to, to, to articulate this, this debate and this controversy in terms of grievance studies, you know, infecting the, you know, the ethos of proper academic critique and, and scholarly work. This is, this is not the case. The work, regardless of, and, and the technical merits of the piece is a different thing, right, which I actually have sympathy with, with Bazan and Weaver on, right? But whether this approach or this project is a, is a grievance thing, nah. I'm sorry, that's, that's where we start to get the methodological whiteness coming up. Can I jump in real quick and just say something, uh, just real quick, um, kind of as a statement, but also a question to everyone. I, I think I actually agree a lot with what Robbie was saying and what Dan and uh, Patrick were saying about editorial practices. And obviously you're more than me to discuss the behind the scenes work of editing journals. Regarding what could have been done better or avoided though, I, I guess for me as like a lay person, uh, Sorry, as a, just as an observer, I think it could have been fine, as you guys were mentioning, had Buzan simply provided their initial response in security dialogue if they wanted to include a link to expand their points, because this is a serious issue and a serious accusation. Uh, did it need to be 90 pages? That's their call that might be over the top, you know, for me, but could it have been like, you know, along the lines of 30 or 40 pages? Fine. But the troubling part about this that others have highlighted is did Ole Waver really need to discuss journal decisions in detail on Twitter? And I think that's the ethical, the question of professional ethics moving forward in terms of, you know, if people disagree with a journal decision, are they entitled to vent their frustrations on Twitter? I just feel like for talking about speech acts, there could be a whole variety of unintended discursive consequences and even just material like you guys were mentioning, litigation, harassment against people. I mean, it's, 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 take, it's become incredibly toxic and dangerous. And I think that's incredibly worrisome. And so I just think in the future, maybe we should have more discussions about professionalism and social media. Um, how to, and, and I want to come back to Elena Hansen's critique, which you guys were mentioning. It really is, for me, an exemplary example of generosity, of compassion, of handling critique with grace. And for me, I would rather, given if, if we each have the assumption that any of us is capable of saying something 
intentionally racist? Hopefully not, but I think anyone is capable of doing it, especially those who are privileged and in positions of power. The first default response, I think, is to humble yourself and say, okay, let's, let's really talk about this. Do I think that there's substance to this, but how could I interrogate my own thoughts, my own history to say, could I transform it and do better? And an example that comes to mind is I, I have friends who model for me, what is good white allyship, where they constantly check in and they say, did I word that the right way? Am I doing this the right way? They, they, they put in the effort, the time and the work to ask indigenous people, people of color, you know, how can I do better and how can I be better? And I'm not seeing enough of that, whether it's on Twitter or in other forums, basically. But I also want to recognize there are moments where dialogue is, is possible. Um, sometimes even and, and I worry about the implications here. I don't want to advocate tone policing for people of color either. Um, because oftentimes, as Robbie was saying, you know, minorities are expected to be polite. They're expected to be kind in the face of just impossible circumstances. And yet there are moments where perhaps it's actually called for to, uh, I would by default advocate for compassion and kindness and empathy. But I also recognize, maybe not in this type of space, but generally speaking, social and political spaces, there will be moments where you have to disrupt the system and protest. And you're going to be labeled as someone who's not necessarily, quote, respectable or kind, but yet you're, for example, trying to protest police brutality and people literally getting killed or inaccessible housing policies that discriminate on a daily basis. So I think moving forward, we have political ethical questions, too, of when is dialogue possible? When is it not? Uh, like, what are the limits of dialogue? Who do we have dialogues with? How do we develop strategies for doing so to promote a culture of kindness and empathy? But yet, how do we also support people when they literally are trying to fight for their lives and their existence and a better quality and, and equity to the point that it would kind of push the boundaries of all that. Because it is one thing to have a conversation, as we all are, in an academic setting with people who have the training to have dialogues. But in everyday life, I think these conversations can get heated. And I'll leave you all with a, um, another example just to think about before we move on. And that is uh, I actually encountering a woman who was the wife of a friend who was saying, racist, bigoted things against Arabs. And she was saying incredibly racist things against Arab Americans and Islamic, uh, Islamophobic comments against Muslims. And I thought, okay, do I actually give this woman my time of and try to convince her to learn and possibly challenge her own assumptions? Or is it problematic to give her that type of platform and space? So at that point, I said, maybe I should just de-escalate the tensions and try to take the higher road here. But I have other thoughts about that in a second. And I spent an hour of my time trying to be as polite as I could be, trying to be as respectful as I could be, offering to take her to our local mosque where she could meet other people from the Middle East. And I think I approached it in that way, knowing that there's all these problematic media representations. I never know if someone in real life is going to have a, a certain image of how an Arab or Muslim or Palestinian is going to act. So that's where I, I try to approach things with a sense of generosity and compassion initially, if I'm, if, if I'm capable of doing so. But despite doing all of that for an hour of my time, she still was saying incredibly racist things. And so it, it just, I learned a few things that day. One is dialogue doesn't always produce the results that we want. Some people really are a lost cause. We hope that they'll wake up one day, but we can't afford to wait on them to do that. And two, 
you know, we shouldn't expect people of color to predominantly be the ones doing the emotional labor and the work. I'm, I'm very grateful for people who are trying so hard to be better white allies, better privileged allies. Thank you. I appreciate that, uh, truly. Um, but I still think the burden of emotional labor, you know, I think as Robbie was alluding to in terms of generosity tends to fall on the marginalized. So I kind of just want us all to be wary of that as we move forward. And I hope that the senior scholars in this Buzan and Waver kind of take a note for Anna Hansen moving forward and see how, you know, a feminist in the disciplines teaching everybody how to be compassionate, humble, but also intellectually open with her critique, but also confident in noting where she thought the original authors got their piece wrong. So I have to uh, applaud Professor Hansen for that. To say also, there's, we have to remember, I mean, there, there are media effects, right? And, and the fact that some of this, uh, I don't even know if I want to call it a discussion, but uh, exchange is is unfolding on Twitter, right? And Twitter is a platform that really privileges gotcha, right? So even if you're doing a long Twitter stream where you've got 15, 16 things, the fact that it's showing up in short bites and people are sort of commenting on different pieces of it and it gets very sort of chaotic, um, you know, yes, there, there there's a, there's a there's a a real intellectual privilege to being able to sit down and read an 85 page argument there's a distinct amount of training that one has to be engaged in in order to be able to do that kind of thing to follow an 85 page subtle argument to be able to sort of weigh up different pieces and and even if that were possible to do for something like this it sure as heck isn't going to be done on twitter and the fact that all of this is now playing out in the twitter sphere um i think is just exacerbating the lack of dialogue because it's really difficult to come to anything on Twitter except blows, right? Because that's sort of the nature of the medium. It's very hard to have like a, a meaningful exchange over something like that. Yeah. Um, lose so lose friends on lose friends on Facebook, make enemies on Twitter. Exactly, <laughs> it, absolutely true. I mean, and it, it, I mean, there are these media effects, right? And there, there maybe they're they're just sort of shaping effects, but still, you know, there there are things you can do that the, the medium kind of pushes you to. Um, and I do think that it does raise as a as a kind of broader like meta question here, um, like we do we, we we talk about scholarly ethics in the classroom. We talk about scholarly ethics sometimes when we're talking about like publications we don't have a really robust conversation about scholarly ethics on social media. Um, but since it's so much a part of our lives now um, that we, we need to, right? We need to start saying, like back to a question that was sort of mentioned earlier on in the discussion, like is it appropriate to talk about a, not just this case, but a journal's decision on social media? Now people do all the time and some people do it charitably and some people do it not charitably and some people do it anonymously and some people do it wink wink anonymously and you know so there's all sorts of gray areas about how one actually engages with this um but i think it's really important for that both because social media has become such an important part of our scholarly production or scholarly connection now um and not just because of lockdown but just generally it's so much more of a part of our a part of our intellectual lives um but it's also really important to go back to something that Robbie said earlier, which I think is we really can't lose sight of. Um, all of these debates are fractal and they're fractal in the sort of Andrew Rabbit sense. Like we're arguing about this and it seems huge and it is for us, 
but from the outside, it all looks like, you know, academics arguing about academic stuff academically. And then people who are way outside of that are going to be able to pull pieces out of that and use it in ways that no participant in this debate is going to say, oh, that's what we meant. So some of the sorts of pieces, the kind of more more right-wingy pieces that are using this as an example of, oh, look at these terrible things that all that over-liberal academy yep. is getting into with all this grievance culture and so on right. and so forth. Um, those, which I think we can all agree, are not what anybody in this debate is actually advocating, mm -hmm. are the sorts of lessons that outsiders are drawing right. from this. Exactly. And the fact that this isn't happening in a boardroom and it's not even happening in the bar, it's happening on Twitter. So people can see this and utilize this. Like we don't, I, I don't think we, 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 as a scholarly community, have spent enough time kind of reflecting on what it means that now these kinds of discussions are taking place in public. And that people who are not part of the discussions are able to take very, very different things from those discussions than what we think we're doing in the course of those conversations. If it were not for social media, how many people would be having this conversation? And how would they be having this conversation? Um, you know, it would not be being blown up in the way that it is. I think, I think, I think it was trending at one point on Twitter. Right? There's, there's a lot 11, of yeah, man, 11,000 hits on yeah. um, uh, uh, Weaver and Buzan's reply, yeah. which is more than even uh, 8,000 hits on uh, Howell and um, uh, Rick de Montpetit's piece. So, wow. and, and that is, that is, t don't tell me that ain't social media, right? Oh, no, so, absolutely. Uh, you know, like, absolutely. Like but this is what we need, but we need to think more about this going forward, I think. And I think that that's, that's another important kind of lesson to draw from this. But I, I do want to say the thing Jared said earlier about transparency. So my basic view is that if Guzan and Waver believe that they were wrong by the editorial process and it produced a piece that misrepresented their work, and I think they have some technical grounds for arguing that that's the case um, at, in some of these, some of the citations, right? Maybe not quite as many as they say, but some of them really do look pretty fishy in, in the sort of moving backwards and forwards stuff. Uh, and if you also feel like you were very, very poorly served by the editorial process first failed you once and then it failed you a second time, I think it's okay to, to, to articulate that in, in a public space, even if there are other people who will have access to it who may instrumentalize it for their own purposes. Because I do think that the only thing that holds, I focused on editorial process, but the only thing that holds editors accountable is the community. You know, or the association, they're an association journal, but by and large, it's the community. And so I don't have a problem with that. What I do worry about are campaigns to sign petitions to get articles taken down. And I, I was just thinking about the Venn diagram of people who probably uh, are latching onto this argument to argue that this is a bad grievance studies piece that should be retracted, and people who were absolutely opposed to pulling the Third World Quarterly article, right, that said imperialism was sometimes good. And I think that. Um, that, that would be an interesting Venn diagram to look at. Hey, I warned you that the ending was abrupt. As always, our music is performed by Lyra Gamelnexon. You can email the podcast at whiskeyindigoromeo at gmail.com. That's not W-I-R-T. That is whiskeyindigoromeo, spelled out, at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at whiskeyirt. In both cases, that is whiskey with an E. If you like what we do, the best way you can show that is by giving us a positive rating and possibly even a positive review at whatever streaming service you use. Well, that's it. Mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening.